Well, good morning again, everyone. Come and have a seat. Ordinarily, if we were this kind of sparse in terms of people, we'd invite people to come and sit a bit forward. But um, for the sake of social distancing, we'll remain as we are. <laughs> yeah, Victoria was suggesting that we do what they do in PE at school and spread your arms out and make sure that you can't touch anyone around you. Anyway, let's pray. <clears throat> Our gracious Father, we praise you that you are good, that you are kind, um, and that you are with us. We pray that you would be with us this morning as we hear your voice um, through your preached word, and uh, please would it sustain us and strengthen us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, are you, like me, feeling pretty distracted at the moment? Um, it's hard not to be with all that's going on, the daily updates, the ever-changing situation, the uncertainty about what the future holds, both this year and beyond. Whatever time of day, the coronavirus is never far from our thoughts. As many have said, it's an unprecedented time for all of us. And even without the worries of the coronavirus, I wonder if you, in general, find yourself uh, easily distracted, flip-flopping, uh, between different things. Obviously, for some, that's not a bad thing. Um, it's part of their uh, role uh, at work or at home. Uh, for Dr. Victoria, it's, you know, she has to go from patient to patient and flip-flop between different things. But what about when it comes to your spiritual life, to church, or your personal devotions, to prayer, or you're meditating on the Lord and his goodness as it is expressed towards you. Do you find it difficult, even at the best of times, to move away from the things pressing in on your heart and your mind? Well, um, Cal Newport, he wrote this book, is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University in the States. Uh, but he's also an author who writes about how to perform productive, valuable, and meaningful work in an increasingly distracted digital age. And basically, his thesis is that we, as a society, have lost the ability for deep work. Because the network tools that we so highly prize, communication services like email, uh, text messaging, social media platforms like Twitter, Facebook, infotainment websites you know, that seek to entertain and inform, BuzzFeed, Reddit, whatever, open plan offices, uh, combined with our complete and total access to all these things, basically at all times, literally in our hands, result in us spending our lives in a frantic blur. Our lives have become fragmented because we don't have the capacity to cope with the volume of information and input that comes at us. It's a loud and distracting world, especially at the moment. We think that by being connected to all those things and having all that information at our fingertips will make us more productive and more fruitful, when in fact, the reverse is true. That's one of the reasons that we're busier than ever and at the very same time, more stressed and anxious, unable to focus, to use our imaginations, to think and meditate deeply, to rest and to pray. But of course, as Christians, we know that there's also an even deeper reason for some of that. Because our lives are not just shaped by the things that come at us, 
they're also shaped by what arises from within, from what we love and what we value most. And our response, both collectively and individually, to this current coronavirus crisis will inevitably reveal something of that, perhaps positively, in, in a right concern for the vulnerable and the sick, but also perhaps negatively, as our fears and our anxieties about what we might lose bubble up to the surface. For the next three weeks, we'll be hearing from the Lord in the book of Haggai. And you might think that there are more obvious places to turn in a time like this. After all, in some ways, the book doesn't have much to it. For instance, it's very short, just two chapters, 38 verses, that's all. The events in the book only cover a period of about four months. As for Haggai himself, we don't know much about him, uh, just that he's a prophet of the Lord, commissioned by the Lord to deliver the word of the Lord to the people of the Lord on their return to Jerusalem from exile. But there is a lot we can learn from Haggai. And by learn, I don't just mean facts to take away. What I mean is that Haggai will help to reorient us and refocus our hearts and our lives and our worship on God who is great and good and worthy, and who is also with us. So if you're feeling at all distracted or discouraged or disillusioned or even distant from God this morning, I hope and pray that you find this to be exactly what you need. And Marigold is going to come and read the first chapter for us. Thanks. Okay, uh, the reading's on page 948, and we're reading the first chapter of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses whilst this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. 
I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the word of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. This is the word of the Lord. Many thanks. Well, for centuries, the prophets had warned the Israelites about breaking their covenant with God. If the people continued in their idolatry, their injustice and sin, uh, they warned that the great empire Babylon would come and destroy Jerusalem and take the people into exile. And that's exactly what happened. You can read about it elsewhere in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25. But it wasn't the end of the story. God promised to bring back a transformed remnant, a small group of people, to live in a new Jerusalem with God's presence in their midst. And we know that, how that happened because it's not only recorded in the book of Ezra, but also on this, the Cyrus Cylinder. Now, the Cyrus Cylinder was found in an archaeological expedition in Mesopotamia and it, in the 20th century, I can't remember when, but it now lives in the British Museum. Created in 539 BC, it contains the Akkadian account of Cyrus the Great, the Persian ruler, who marched into Babylonia and took over. This resulted in the submission of rulers throughout the Babylonian Empire, but crucially, the Cyrus Cylinder also records Cyrus's decree to reconstruct sanctuaries for the gods of his conquered nations and to return their former inhabitants to their land where they would establish some form of local rule under native governors. So, in 538 BC, the Israelites, God's exiled people, led by Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, and Joshua, the high priest, returned to Judah and Jerusalem. That's in Ezra chapter 1. They began to rebuild the city and their lives. Where Solomon's temple once stood, they built an altar to reinstitute the Mosaic sacrifices. They held regular worship, and they prepared uh, to rebuild the temple again, the great theological symbol of God's presence with them. Now, all of this was a sign of God's favor. In his promises, in his providence, the promises that God would return his exiled people to their home had begun to come to pass, even through pagan rulers like Cyrus. The future seemed bright. But then, the work on the temple stopped. It stopped because not only were the people under pressure from pagan rulers and Persian rulers and from the surrounding enemies, 
but things just weren't what they used to be. The population was about a third of its original size in Jerusalem. The city itself was about a fifth of its original size. So the people grew cold and dispirited. They postponed the temple project for another time. Now's the time to get right economically, they thought. Now's the time to build ourselves some proper houses. Let's get stable, and then we can focus on the Lord's work. But then things got even worse. Drought, famine, economic hardship. And it's to those people that Haggai originally brought this message from the Lord. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 again. In the second year of King Darius, he was um, about third in line after Cyrus. On the third day... Of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Yet, as we begin this series, remember that this isn't just the Lord's word to them back then. As the people of God today, and because all of Holy Scripture is a unity that centers on Jesus Christ, we too participate in the realities of this book. We might live in 21st century Banbury, not in the second temple period in Jerusalem, but we are also addressed in this scripture because it's not just a piece of human writing produced in a particular cultural and religious context. More essentially, The book of Haggai is a piece of divine self-revelation which leads us, like it did to the remnant Israelites, to hear from and encounter the living God. And there are various ways we'll be given that through the book. But today's message comes to us in, in two parts, and the first is this. Give careful thought to your ways. Don't be distracted from your relationship with God. Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. The Lord's house is just another way of saying the temple. And the reason that it was so important uh, to rebuild was because it was the visible sign of God's presence with his people and his covenant commitment to them. It represented a a sacred center uh, for Israelite life and worship in which they could gain access and communicate with God. Solomon's temple, the first temple, which had been demolished, Um, did that too. But, But now the Lord's instruction to rebuild it was a clear indication to the people of God's favor. His commitment to renew his covenant relationship with them and to bless them. It was a gift. But of course there was a problem, not with God, rather at the people's end of the relationship. The temple's Restoration should have also signified their response to God's goodness, their desire to receive his gift and maintain their relationship with the Lord. Building was an expression of faith. And so their refusal to build the house was a rejection of that offer of grace, the grace of 
God's indwelling with them. Instead of renewing their trust and rebuilding the temple, they decided that other things took priority, their own houses, their own affairs. They stopped building, not on theological grounds, but because of economic, political, and other, we might say, sensible reasons. In other words, you could say their God-oriented worship gave way to self-oriented pragmatism. The root of which is, of course, pride. It's the attitude that says, I, we, know better than God. Um, interesting, I read this quote yesterday, but Augustine aptly, I think, describes pride as a disease that spreads uh, widely and pervades all. I thought, wow, yeah, that, uh, that's a, a good quote for the moment. And um, as a result, instead of blessing, there's judgment or, or discipline. Remember, these are the Lord's people, not the enemy nations. And just like a parent might withhold something from a child to help them to see the folly of ignoring their good instructions, the Lord put into effect the covenant curses found in places like Deuteronomy 28. Basically, he withheld blessing. None of their work and actions had the intended results. None of it worked out as expected. Just have a look at verse 6. You've planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you never have your, your fill. You drink, but you never have your fill. Literally, you, you drink, it says, but there is no drunkenness. Um, they can't even inebriate themselves effectively. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in. That is, you, you hire yourself out to punctured bags. Their work amounts to nothing. And verse 9 you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy running away to your own house. Now, how does all this relate to us? Certainly, we no longer have a physical temple. It's redundant now. That's because the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem was just a shadow, a necessary step uh, for ushering in a new era, one in which God's glory would fill uh, the temple like never before, as Jesus Christ, the embodied temple, came and walked among us, Emmanuel, God with us. The New Testament also portrays the church, the body of Christ, as a place where God's presence is manifested. So in many ways, we are not like the Israelites. Yet in other ways, we very much are. We're also God's people, the covenant community, children of the promise, and part of the same larger story. And the New Testament draws on this prophetic material to point us to Christ as the one through whom these ancient hopes were realized and to shape our faithful living in the present. Remember in 2 Timothy, which we did a few months back now, how God described the scriptures, uh, sorry, uh, Paul and God, uh, described the scriptures. They're able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, but they're also, it says, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that we're thoroughly equipped for every good work. In Christ, the church is the new Israel. Our experience, though not identical, 
is in continuity with theirs. It's easy to think how silly they were not to get on with what the Lord commanded to rebuild the temple. But you know, we share many of the same issues. And so we must also hear this call to consider our ways. In what ways have we been occupied with our own concerns and cast aside the worship of God? In God's kindness, he has shined the gospel into our lives and restored us from the exile of sin. He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, uniting us with him forever. He offers us his peace, his love, his presence. And yet our hearts and our minds are so often and easily taken up with other things, all sorts of things, a career or lack of one, material possessions, our health and well-being, our role in the church, even things like love and family, all of those good things, they're, they're blessings given for our provision and enjoyment when we receive them like a gift from the Lord. But it's so easy to make them the center of our lives and then to be consumed by them because we think that they'll give us a significance and security, safety and fulfillment, worth and identity if we devote ourselves to them. The trouble is when they become the things that we need and pursue above all else, they steal us away from devotion and communion with God even if we're still doing loads of Christian stuff, and many of you are, attending Bible studies, doing personal evangelism, serving the church, if our hearts are not oriented towards God, those things at worst will become a means of, of self-promotion, self-gain. At best, they just become tools for self-improvement or to get other people right with God in a sterile, transactional sense. What they won't do is lead us to love and enjoyment of him. And so we'll grow cold. Perhaps cold is how you feel now. So how do we change? How do we become less distracted from, uh, in, uh, from our relationship with God, especially at times like this when our thoughts are just overrun with worry? How do we become reoriented towards God so that we might come to delight in him afresh and worship him in an undivided way? And for that to be a comfort in times of trouble and uncertainty. Well, let's hear how the Lord instructed the people in Haggai's day. Uh, verse 8, he says, Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. And verse 12, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people, I am with you, declares the Lord. Now, the reason that the Lord... Um, instructed the people to go and chop wood and get back to rebuilding the temple is because that is where he told them they could find him. God graciously promised his presence in the temple. In their distraction, they'd forgotten that the Lord himself is what they needed and, and he'd given uh, them himself. 
And so we come to the second thing uh, to take away this morning and the grounds for that first command. Give careful thoughts to your ways. Don't be distracted from your relationship with God for, because the Lord Almighty is worthy and he is with us. He is worthy. He is worthy of our trust and our honor because he is the Lord Almighty. That's a title used 14 times in this book. Haggai is really big on it uh, in the book's 38 verses. And what it expresses is the Lord's greatness and power and immensity. <clears throat> Just clearing my throat in case you're wondering. <laughs> Nothing else. <clears throat> and immensity in himself. He is able to do everything that he wills according to his perfect wisdom, goodness, and love. That includes the big things, the creation of the world, the redemption of his people through Christ, the judgment of sin and evil, and the consummation of the new creation. But it also extends to his work and knowledge in the ordinary things and in ordinary people like us here in, at St. Paul's in Banbury and to each of us individually in our adoption, our sanctification, our, our comforting, our strengthening in the faith. His power is immeasurable and limitless. And because it shines beyond everything, because he is beyond everything, it can shine in everything and in every place. What that means is that even if we can't stir ourselves up to faith and obedience and worship and trust, when our Christian lives haven't turned out what they want to be, and in times of crisis, he can. There is a way out of discouragement and apathy if that's what you're feeling this morning. And it's not just do more of this or do that better. It's him. Our God offers himself to us that we might receive him. He bids us to partake in the benefits of the gospel, which he has made available to us in Christ and through Christ, our mediator. The Lord Jesus says, remember, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he's also given us ways and means of doing that, not limited to, but including the, the reading and hearing and meditating and application of God's word to us. And, and not just so that we read it to get it right and to read it in the right way, but with the aim of contemplation and love of God and of neighbor. He's also given us participation in the church, means of grace, prayer. All those things are gifts to foster faith. Of course, some of those things will be easier than others at the moment, which is why we need to work really hard to help one another in that, through phone calls to the isolated, through concern and practical tasks for the elderly or the vulnerable, if we're able to, through committing to prayer for one another, not abandoning the sick. As hard as it sounds, it, comforting those who are, who are seriously sick as well and, and perhaps facing up to their own mortality. While we can, also by making the most of these Sunday gatherings as a precious gift, as Steve was saying at the start. 
That's all part of building up the spiritual temple, which is the body of Christ. And of course, we might add a witnessing to Christ in times like this. And friends, in trying times such as these, be assured that the Lord will be with us. And he wants us to know and to feel that. His immense power does not mean that he is distant, quite the opposite. It means that he is able to be perfectly present to us at all times and in all places. And we're going to reflect more on that um, more deeply next week. Um, But for now, let's entrust ourselves to the care of the Lord, the Lord Almighty, and pray. Almighty God, we praise you for your greatness, your goodness, your wisdom, and your love. Since you have kindly invited us to yourself, grant us the faith to continually receive from you so that we might not be overwhelmed by our trials. Thank you for your grace and favor. Thank you for Christ, through whom we receive rest and mercy. We pray all this and give you thanks in his name. Amen.